Turn with me to Hosea chapter three. And a second text for today, uh, not only Hosea 3, but also 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Those are gonna be kind of the two texts. Uh, we'll, we'll start with 1 Corinthians 13, and then we'll go to our main text there in Hosea chapter three. Um, the English language um, is shockingly um, sort of clumsy. If you start to study some of the other languages, especially some of the more academic languages, um, like for example, Latin or Greek, um, you start to realize, wow, the English language is pretty clumsy. And I'm not trying to be insulting to our language. I, I like speaking English, um, but, I, but I have to admit, you know, like you take the word ball, and um, some of you are thinking about a ball. Uh, like what kind of ball? Uh, uh, well, uh, maybe a ball sort of like, like this one here. Um, uh, well, you probably didn't think. <laughs> You probably weren't thinking about that because um, that's an unlikely kind of ball to be thinking about. But maybe a basketball or a football or something, you're thinking of ball. You athletes, that's probably the first thing you thought of is whatever ball you were into, football, basketball. Now, if you're an older person, some of us older people, we used to use the word ball and, um, and we used it more in this kind of a context. You know, oh, we're just having a ball. Uh, <laughs> some of the older people are like, yeah. Yeah, if you young people, we used to say, yeah, we're having a ball. Uh, I mean, a fun time. Uh, uh, maybe there's some, you know, young, you know, girls that wanted to be princesses when they were little. And then when they heard the word ball, it didn't mean football. It meant Cinderella ball, uh, that kind of a ball. But then after you got out of that fad, when you were a young girl, you became an, uh, a mother. And then the word ball took on like a whole new meaning. <laughs> uh, ball, except you spell it just a little differently, but it's still, you say it, ball. Um, or if you're like Debbie and I, one of our favorite TV shows to watch, you got, you know, Lucille Ball. She was awesome. She was great. I, I love Lucy. You know, Deb and I, we, we love that show. But it's funny because the word ball is an inconsequential word and it doesn't really matter, I guess, that we have one word for different things. But some words really do matter, especially when you're reading the Bible. And, and wouldn't you say the word love is kind of an important word? And yet the English word for love is one of the more clumsy of the words that we have in the English language. I can say, you know, I love hot fudge sundaes. And I can say the next sentence, I love my wife, Debbie. Uh, are those exactly the same? Well, I sure hope not. Uh, they need to be different. Uh, and yet it's the same clumsy word. I love hot fudge sundaes. Or I, I love puppies or I love my wife or I, I, I you know, I love. There's actually in the Greek language of the Greek New Testament, um, there's for sure at least four words. Some of the Greek scholars argue there's eight eight words for the word love. And we can go into all eight of them, but uh, let me go over the main four words just because it's important as you study the Bible, because when you have your Bible and it translates the word love into the English, it could be one of these four words. The first one is the most important and it's the word agape. Agape is a word for love, but it's this very specific love. It's kind of a perfect love. It's an unconditional love. And thus, when you talk about agape love, most of the time, we're talking about how God loves you. God loves people. And the love we're supposed to have for God, probably don't as much as we should, but agape. Um, and agape is, is a beautiful, unconditional sort of love. And that word's used in the Bible quite a bit. It's not, by the way, used as much in secular literature. Um, you know, Homer and all that stuff and the, you know, the, the Greek you know, epics that uh, what have you, you don't see agape as much because it's not a Christian work. It's a, uh, agape is kind of a Christian, unconditional, God-like love that we talk about. The, the, the word that the Greeks like to use is this one, eros. <laughs> and maybe you know where that word comes from. It's where we get that word, you know, erotic. Um, it's a sexual uh, kind of passion. Um, eros is, is um, that kind of love. Um, then you have phileo. Uh, phileo is that word where we get, you know, other words like Philadelphia, uh, the, the city of brotherly love, you know, as we call it. Um, that's the idea of phileo love. It's brotherly love. It's like, hey, I love you, bro. That kind of love, your friend. A friendship or affectionate regard is the word, the Greek word phileo. And then another strange one is the word storge. Storge uh, is the love that a parent has for a child. Uh, you know, affection kind of a, a love that's um, a little less uh, romantic like uh, Eros, um, but it's not quite as unconditional as uh, agape. Now, by the way, I gotta say, um, I think parents, we get a tiny taste of agape 
when we have kids because isn't it amazing how you can love these little beings so much? If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you have that old phrase, there's a face only a mother can love. Um, uh, that, that's a real thing. I mean, how is it that the little kid sitting there picking off his chicken pox scabs and eating them, how can a mom, how can a mom love that? Like, like cornflakes, there he is, you know, it's like, like how can a mom, we're all like, and she's like, oh, but I just love that little scab picking little rascal. Uh, that's, that's because, it's because a parent has sort of a, a deeper love for, for, for someone that everybody else is like, gross. Um, that, that's, that's, it borders into agape, but largely parental love is more of a storge kind of love. But do you see how precise more the, the words that the Greek you know, culture would use for love would, would dial it right in. The reason this is important is because um, of all these, you know, the word agape is used a lot in the Bible. And one of the things we need to remember is um, this is a love that you and I should all hope to have for one another. And the only way we'll really understand it is to look to see what the Bible says about agape. And that's why we start here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's called the chapter of love. It sort of defines what agape love is. Um, and nowhere else in the world do you see a, 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 a more rich definition of what agape love is than what Paul the apostle writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's take a look, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, by the way, think about this as we're reading about love. And one of the things Jesus said about the end times or the end of the world is he said, the love of many will grow cold. Do you guys sense that sort of, for sure, agape love, but just general love. And uh, do you feel like it's going cold these days? Man, there's so much mean-spiritedness and anger and vitriol and hatred. And man, people are just yelling at each other and nobody's talking with each other and nobody's loving someone unconditionally. If, if you disagree with my political views or my views on you know, masks or va vaccines, or if you disagree, then I hate you. You're a murderer and you're, you're Hitler. And like, it's amazing how people are just so divided politically, medicinally, uh, attitudinally or whatever. Like it's amazing. We all are so upset today. But you know what's amazing to me? It's not just the secular world that's doing that. It's the Christian church. We're finding massive division in the Christian church. And you know what the church needs a big dose of? Agape. We need agape desperately. Um, and the Bible teaches that the church should be full of love. You will know my disciples by your agape one for another, your love one for another. That's what Jesus said. And I feel like the church, we're dropping that ball in these modern times largely. Oh, God forbid. So as we consider this love that God has for us, tuck in the back of your mind, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I, am I doing this agape love thing or am I jumping on the, the world's bandwagon of just being kind of hateful and mean and thinking that I have a right to spew my great wisdom well, this is where 1 Corinthians takes our legs out from under us on that one. And it says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse one, it says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not, and there's the word, English translation of the King Jimmy here is the charity. And that's even a harder word because our word charity means you gave to the Boy Scouts or something. Uh, that's, that's a harder word. The word is love in a lot of your newer translations, but the, the original Greek word is not phileo, or you know, eros or storge, it's agape, unconditional, perfect, godly kind of love. So it says, though I speak with tongues of men and of angels and have not agape, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Speaking of old TV shows, um, any of you guys old enough to remember the gong show? It's, it's kind of like America's Got Talent, but if they didn't like you, they didn't push the X button. They had this huge gong on the stage and they'd run up and go, gong! And then the person, they'd literally drag them off the stage. Like, with, like even with a hook or crook, you know, they like, the person keep performing and, and keep performing and they just start dragging them off. It was hilarious, it was great. I think they should start doing that with America's Got Talent. <laughs> Probably not politically correct today. But you can, you, you know, you can speak with tongues of men, of angels and be all spiritual and stuff. But if you don't have agape, it says you're like the gong show. That's what, it's, that's what it's saying here when it says like a big gold symbol or a you know, tinkling sound of, of brass or whatever. Verse two, and though I have the gift of prophecy um, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains. 
and have not agape, I am nothing. Keep in mind, this is not Paul being hyperbolic or exaggeratory. He, he is, Paul is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing this down saying, you can, you can have faith to move mountains, but if you don't have agape, you've got nothing. This is amazing. Verse three, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned and have not agape, it profiteth me nothing. You know, the idea of your body being burned uh, was a real problem in Paul's day. You could be burned at the stake for what you believed in. You know, they could tie you up to a post and put a bunch of, of sticks around you and just pour some gasoline on and say, okay, you're a Christian, here you go. And you could do that. You could sacrifice your body as a martyr of, of Christian faith. But if you don't have love, you got nothing. Do you realize that Paul is showing how extremely important this agape love is over everything else? It's amazing how we get into all the little things. I have wisdom to share with everyone. Yeah, but if you don't have agape, we should just keep our mouth shut. That's what it's saying here. Well, he says that, and then he nails it down even more powerfully. Verses four through the beginning of verse eight is kind of the cream of the crop here. He says, charity, verse four, agape, suffereth long and is kind. Charity or love, agape, envieth not. Agape vaunteth not itself and is not puffed up. That's prideful and arrogant. Verse five, it doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Agape bears all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endures all things. Agape never fails. This is a powerful passage. That's why it's called the love chapter. It's talking about agape. If you kind of look at this, you know, just verses four through the beginning of verse eight, what you start to see is the word charity. Um, one thing I remember a Sunday school teacher had us do um, when I was a little kid is to see how we're doing, do the, the love test and to see how I measure up to this challenge. And what they made us do is take out the word charity and put our own name in there. And it was brutal. Um, let's do that. Let's go through that exercise. You think your name, I'll put my name in here. Let's read. Brett suffereth long. That's true. <laughs> and is kind. Brett envieth not. Brett, Brett vaunteth not himself and is not puffed up. That's absolutely true. <laughs> A little irony there just for, for humor. Um, doth not behave himself unseemly or seeks his own. Bread is not easily provoked. Bread thinks no evil. Rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bread bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This one really takes the cake. Bread never fails. <laughs> now, why are you laughing? Uh, it's because you were thinking of yourself, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, that, that last one, you see, when we put our own name in there, you're like, oh man, I'm so far. I'm so far from agape love. I, I, I start to wonder, is it even possible for you and I to see true agape love apart from God anywhere in the cosmos? I think really it's the Lord alone who, who demonstrates that perfect, unconditional, godly kind of love. And you and I barely even could fathom what agape really is like. And you got, you got that sense when you, instead of putting your name or my name in there, what if you put the name of Christ in there? Jesus suffereth long and he did, didn't he? Jesus is kind and he was and he is. Jesus envies not. Jesus doesn't vaunt himself or is not puffed up. Um, Jesus does not behave himself unseemly and doesn't seek his own. He's not easily provoked. Jesus doesn't think any evil. Jesus doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Jesus, you know, rejoices in the truth and he bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. And the big one of all, this is the only name that works, Jesus never fails. Um, this is an important thing to know, how much God loves you. Now here's the problem, some of you, and, and this is really sad to me because I've seen this as a pastor now for a lot of years. Some of you have a really hard time believing that God loves you that much. You're sure that you've crossed the line, that your sins are worse. Oh, Brett, I'm sure God loves you, the pastor. Um, and I'm sure God loves all these pristine, stained glass, athy crickers that are sitting here in the room. But I've got sins, man. I got stuff, I got secret stuff that nobody knows about. 
And there's, I'm sure that God, he loves all you, but I don't know if he loves me. Now, now here's the thing. Some of you that wrestle with this, you also probably never had a good example. Some, some people that struggle with God's love the most are people that were never really loved by their parents in a way that was good. Like I think that sometimes people superimpose the love that was very conditional or maybe even absent and they sort of superimpose their own experience with their parents that may or may not have been good and they think, well, surely God's disappointed or angry or perturbed or disgusted. But as it turns out, the Bible makes this massive argument throughout, from cover to cover, by the way, that even in your most grossest of scab-eating sins, even your ugliest thing that only you and God knows about, God says, I still love you. And he loves you not just kind of or sort of, he loves you with agape love. Um, this is the God that we serve. And, and so confident was John the apostle when he wrote this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, he said, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. Now the words love here, the three times in this verse, agape, agape, agape. And we have known and believed the agape that God has to us. And God is agape. He that dwelleth in agape dwelleth in God and God in him. I love how John just boldly declares, and we have known and believed the, the agape that God has to us. I hope you can, by the end of today, I want you to be able to say that with confidence. And we have known and believed the agape that God has to us, because that's just the truth. Whether you know it or not, or understand it or not, the fact of the matter is God loves you so much. And you know, we've got these trite little things. We've got stickers, God loves you. And, and we've said it so much. And, and you know, we've got sandwich board people that, that it's almost lost its meaning a little bit. But when I read the Bible, I'm reminded over and over again of God's amazing agape love for you and for me. Now, one of the things about the Old Testament is I've said it a million times, you know, it's a picture book of New Testament truth. I love picture books. When I was a kid, I liked picture books. I didn't wanna read words. I wanted to see pictures. I'm still kind of like that. Only I can read pictures with words in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a giant picture book that teaches us New Testament truths. And such is the case with Hosea. Hosea, the book of Hosea is speaking of God's agape love for not only Israel, the, the people of the Jews of Israel, but also his love for you and for me. And it's this amazing, beautiful picture of even in our ugliest of uglies, the Lord still loves us that much, agape love. Let's go back now to Hosea uh, chapter three, uh, our text this morning. And here in Hosea chapter three, what we're doing here is we're, we're, we're kind of in the middle of the story. And I need to get us all up to speed because we've been sort of dabbling in the story. Uh, on Wednesday night, we covered the first two chapters and talked a little more about it. Last Sunday, we cracked the door open. Remember the door of hope in the Valley of Acor? We've, we've done some work, but, but let's sync up here because the story is so awesome. It's an amazing story and, and it's kind of got a dark side to it, but it's got this beautiful light at the end that I think is so cool. Um, so what's the deal? Well, we start with Hosea the prophet. He's a young prophet, pretty well known. Uh, he and Amos are the only two prophets in the Northern Kingdom. This is just before the Assyrians would drag the Northern Kingdom, the 10 tribes of Israel by hooks in their noses. Remember that? Uh, the Assyrians would drag them off and they would be assimilated into Assyria, Assyrian culture and really largely scattered for um, thousands of years until 1948, where the Jews were regathered in that region of Israel again. Like it's really an amazing story. But just before that happens, Hosea's on the scene prophesying, he's thundering, repent your sins. Uh, you're going down if you don't repent. But then the Lord says, hey, Hosea, I got, I got a, a lesson I want you to do. And, and don't you wonder if poor old Hosea, he's thinking, oh man, you mean lessons like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah? What do you want me to, to do, Lord? Gulp. Like, wouldn't you be a little nervous? Uh, you know, I wonder if I was like, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to like Isaiah? Do I have to walk around naked for like, uh, uh, he's taking off his clothes, uh, naked for a year? Uh, no, Hosea, keep your clothes on. <laughs> um, oh, do you want me to cut my hair? No, no, don't cut my hair and throw it in the wind and chop it up with a sword. Nope, that's what another prophet did. Do I have to lay on my side for like a, a year? Nope, don't, don't lay on your side. What, what is it you want me to do? I, I want you to get married. Oh, can do. I mean, compared to all those other dudes eating manure and stuff like that, that's what the other prophets had to do. 
getting married, no sweat, man, okay. But, but here's the catch, Hosea. I want you to go down into the red light district of town and I want you to find, there's a prostitute there and I want you to marry her. Gulp, you want me to marry a prostitute? Yep. Worse still, her name is Gomer. Well, golly. I don't know why I'm on old TV shows uh, today, but, um, but, but yeah, Gomer, what a funny name. But as it turns out, Gomer, she seems to be uh, an attractive young woman because she is desired of men. We learned that there in the book of Hosea, that men wanna sleep with her. And that's why she's a prostitute. Now, one of the things you need to understand about prostitution in those days, um, there was kind of typical prostitution, sort of like we would know it today, but there was a whole nother level of prostitute. And it's likely some of the language of, of, of the book of Hosea indicates that she was a temple prostitute. What's the difference? Well, it was more of a sanctioned activity uh, of th- those that would worship the goddess Diana or you could also say Ashtaroth, there were other goddesses, but the temples that were built to Diana, they, they, they were kind of this place of real prostitution, but it was sort of a, a high class version of it. What do you mean? Well, when I take groups to Israel, one of the things we do is we cross the border from Israel into the country of Jordan. And if we have time, we try to go to this ancient ruin called Jerish. And Jerish is this amazing archeological ruin. It was a 10.0 on the earthquake rector scale that, that toppled this whole city over, you know, somewhere uh, around the first century. But it's amazing, they dug it up and they just kind of tilted it all back up and it sits there as it did a couple thousand years ago. It's an amazing archeological, it might be one of the most incredible archeological digs in all the Middle East. But when we go there, the biggest building is this giant, amazing building, beautiful, uh, Hellenistic uh, architecture, just like amazing, Greek influenced pillars and you know, uh, the capitals on the top of the pillars, it's just beautiful. But the, the biggest building is, is a temple to Diana, the goddess. And what's kind of grotesque is you're like, wow, what are these things? And you're asking the tour guides, like, what's this? Well, if you go, the front of the temple of Diana there at Jerish um, kind of shows us what, what was going on. The, on the front, they had these fancy little half circle platforms that were carved out of stone. And, and they were kind of a niche where they would sort of have a little inset uh, with a little stage, a little stage, six feet by four feet, little stage. And there were like five or six of these little stages on the facade, the front of this huge temple. And you say, what are those for? Well, those were for, you know, the uh, nymphiums or the, or the temple prostitutes that would go and be nude up there dancing and luring men into the temple to come and worship that is to have sex with a temple prostitute, they're in the temple of the goddess Diana. And that's the way they'd worship. Um, This is probably what Gomer was, a temple prostitute. You you would be paid by the, you know, people that worship Diana and you'd get, you know, you were kind of a higher level person. Um, Now, can you imagine there you're doing your thing, you're Gomer you know, trying to lure men in. And suddenly you see this young man and you recognize him. He's kind of famous, Hosea the prophet. He's coming your direction. And you're Gomer thinking, "Uh uh-oh, is he gonna preach at me? Is he gonna prophesy against me? Is he one of these slimy religious leaders that says one thing, but he's coming to do a little, you know, stuff with some prostitute? Is he a creep? Is he a hypocrite? Like, I wonder what Gomer thought as Hosea is coming her way. And then he comes to her, and in my mind's eye, I see him walk up to her, drop to a knee and say, will you marry me? <laughs> like, like, can you imagine? Now, now the, the question is, why did Gomer say yes? Like, that's an interesting question. And, and you have to kind of go to the culture of the day. Sure, being a temple prostitute had its perks as far as money, but it was also a, sort of a, a dark uh, profession that was something you wouldn't wanna be in for the rest of your life. And so chances are Gomer says yes to Hosea because, because um, it's her first chance to be a normal person. The temple prostitute, that was, that was something that people gonna oh, she's a temple prostitute. Um, but now she could be a wife and a mother. And so Hosea marries Gomer and, and the story kind of goes where God says, I want you to do this. And, and that your marriage, Hosea, with Gomer is gonna be a picture of my love for Israel. How you're gonna love Hosea, uh, Gomer is the way I love Israel. And you're gonna be a picture. Well, sure enough, they consummate their marriage and she becomes pregnant and they give birth to a son. 
And so they, they called the name of the son, uh, and this is a name that, you know, you and I go, oh, whatever, his name was Jezreel, whatever. But there's things about the word Jezreel, we touched on it a little bit Wednesday night, but I wanna share a little more about that because the word Jezreel was sort of a, a word, had a negative connotation associated with it. Let me explain. If you go to Israel today and you say, where's the value of Jezreel? They'll say, what are you talking about? Um, it's because they don't pronounce it Jezreel. That's the way we do, J-E-Z-R-E-E-L, Jezreel. But if you go to Israel today, you'd have to say, where's the valley of Yisrael? That's the way they'd say it. Does that sound like another word? Israel. It's not the same word, but it's very close. And, and it's a byword for Israel, and it was through the ages of a negative connotation. And it, and it has to do with what happened in the place that they called Jezreel. It's, it's a little bit like if you had a couple down at Meridian Park and they're in the birthing center there and they have a little baby son and they name him Adolf. You'd say, yeah, don't, don't do that. Uh, why? We like Adolf. Oh, um, there's a guy named Adolf Hitler that you might not want to go with that. It's kind of got a, well, we never heard of him. Yeah, just don't, don't know Adolf. No. That's kind of Jose and Gomer. God says, listen, I want you to name your son Jezreel. You want us to name him what? Why would they, now here's where that comes from. It comes from 2 Kings chapter nine, verses 30 through 36. There's a story there. Remember last Wednesday night, I told you about Jehu, the guy who drove his chariot furiously. Bible says he drove wildly. When they saw him coming from a mile off, like, oh yeah, that's Jehu. How do you know? He's driving. That's the way we see some of you coming at Athey Creek. Uh, but, but Jehu comes storming into this little city where there's this, there's this palace and tower where uh, Jezebel is hanging out. Jezebel's the queen and she's this wicked, evil queen. There's another name you wouldn't name your daughter Jezebel. Why would you do that? Well, it's because Jezebel is one of the most notorious women in all the history of the world. She was this evil queen who killed a bunch of the prophets and she had 450 of her own prophets that were to Baal. And so Jehu just kills all those guys, kills all these prophets and all these worshipers of Baals and he comes storming into town. And so Jezebel's a little nervous, like what's he gonna do to me? So she gets all prettied up, puts on her fake eyelashes and puts on some makeup, brushes her tooth. And, um, and, uh, and then she, she as, as he comes storming in on his chariot, she sticks her head, she's up in the tower and she sticks her head out there. Hey, you big boy, how's it going? Okay, a little paraphrase, I, I admit, but she's like, hey, what's up, Jehu? And Jehu ignores her and says, who is on the Lord's side? Well, these two eunuchs stick their heads out the window and say, we're on the Lord's side. And he says, if you're on the Lord's side, take Jezebel and throw her out that window of the tower. And the guys ran up, grab Jezebel. And she, she splatters there on the ground now, this is one of those stories you didn't color in Sunday school. At least I hope you didn't. Because <laughs> it only gets worse from here. She splats on the ground and then Jehu takes his chariot and runs her over a few times with it. True story. You're, you're making this up. Second Kings chapter nine, verse 30. And then he gets, you know, all that work that Jehu had been doing, it worked up an appetite. So he went into the palace there and had some dinner. And as he's sitting there having dinner, he thinks, oh, Jezebel was a queen. We should probably go deal with her body somehow. And when he came out to deal with it, her body was eaten up by dogs and the only thing left there was her hands and her head. Brett, this is horrible. I brought grandma to church today. I'm just teaching the Bible. Um, why, why eaten up by dogs? Well, as it turns out, Jezebel was so wicked. One of the prophets said, Jezebel, your, your blood will be licked up like by dogs and you'll be eaten by dogs. And also your hubby, Ahab, um, will be eaten up by dogs. That's, that's your doom. And sure enough, this prophecy is there fulfilled when Jehu has her thrown out the window. The dogs came and ate her up. Um, there's a little limerick I shared with you on Wednesday night. I, I should probably show it to you guys. You think, uh, do you wanna hear one of my favorite limericks? Jezebel the queen was a hog. She lived in a morality fog, but when stripped of her power, thrown from the tower, she made a nice meal for a dog. <laughs> I, I told you, it's just a nice, trying to lighten the mood a little bit here. You guys seem a little worried about my Jezebel story. <laughs> but anyway, you say, Brent, what does this have to do with anything? Well, right where she splattered on the pavement there, they called that ground Jezreel, the place where Jezebel was killed and it was, it, was, it was sort of a, a, a 
purposeful naming of something. And what does Jezreel mean? It means scattered or cast away. Scattered or cast away. And it's because Je Jezebel was evil and Israel was evil, they were gonna be scattered and cast away for a season. That's part of God's plan for Israel, to scatter them. It's called the diaspora, the scattering of the Jews. And that would happen. God would judge Israel and scatter them for a couple thousand years. And that's where all this started, this Valley of Jezreel, as you read about in the Bible, this is where this all started. So you have to understand, maybe not even Adolf Hitler, you almost wanna think of a place more than a, a personal name, like you know Auschwitz or Dachau or, or places where there, there's evil that took place there. And you kind of go, yeah, you wouldn't wanna name a, a child that, but that's what they named their child because God told them to. Jezreel, well, then, then the, the story gets more sad with Hosea because eventually Gomer longs for the good old days when she was sleeping around town and was able to have sex with other men. And so she's unfaithful to her husband and she goes and starts sleeping around, no longer as a temple prostitute, but she, she wants clothes and, you know, and jewelry and the finer things. And Hosea is not really able to provide all of that for her. So she goes to her lovers, we read in chapter two looking for food and clothes and wealth and stuff. But she found that those lovers, the more she slept around, the more unhappy she was. That's the truth with sin. She even finds herself saying, oh, I remember when I was with Jose, at least I was happier then. She acknowledged that in chapter two. But while she's sleeping around town, she becomes pregnant again. And this is probably, most scholars agree, it's not Hosea's child, somebody else's child. And she gives birth to the second child. And the second child is, is um, a, a little girl. And so they name her Loruama, Loruama. God tells them, name her Loruama. What does Loruama mean? It means no mercy. So God says, I'm gonna scatter you, Jezreel, Israel. That's the first child. Loruama, you're gonna have no mercy from me. Um, some people say no pity um, is another name for low Rama. Um, and then she becomes pregnant and has a, a third child, again, probably not Hosea's, um, but they name that little child Loami. And her name, that, uh, that little boy's name means um, not my people. Like these are the names God told Gomer and Hosea to name their children. So this picture is Hosea's like the father in heaven who loves his bride, the Jews, but they've adulterated themselves. They've been, the Jews have committed fornication with other gods and goddesses and, and they've forsaken the God that loves them. And the fruit of that is no mercy, you're not my people and I'm gonna scatter you. It's a picture. So rather than Hosea, like many of the prophets, thundering in the streets, you know, repent, you know, turn to the Lord, all that. Now Hosea is this living illustration as people snicker as he walks down the road and they say, that's the guy, the prophet whose wife's a prostitute. And, 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 and instead of thundering, he's weeping. He's, he's walking down the street with tears flowing, brokenhearted, and the people say, what's up with that? And Hosea is saying, even as you see my heart broken by Gomer, this is the heart that the Lord has for you. His heart is broken by you. Like this is an amazingly powerful picture that Hosea the prophet's presenting to the people of Israel and that's his message. What a heartbreak it must have been. Well, as she continued to leave Hosea, Hosea would always, like we read in chapter two, try to woo her back. Oh, come back, be my wife. But she'd say, no way, Hosea. I'm not gonna be your wife. And she kept staying with these dudes, you know, and hoping these guys would give her wealth. But the problem is she started becoming older and more undesirable. And she started to not be really worth anything in the minds of those men that were once her lovers. And she finds herself where nobody wants her anymore. And she finds herself in debt. So what do you do in Bible times when you're in debt and you can't pay your money? Well, you can't file chapter 11. They didn't have that back then. What they had is a thing called debtor's prison. And the way that worked is if you owed a debt that you could not pay, they would throw you in prison and say, you gotta pay your bill. And so hopefully you'd have loving family members who'd come and pay your bill. But if you didn't, they didn't have like a bunch of prison and ping pong tables and cable TV. Uh, they, they, they said, man, we only got like one prison cell. So if you can't pay or if your family's not gonna pay, we're gonna sell you on the slave market where you'll be a slave. That's, you know, there's one of three ways people became slaves um, in Bible times. One is that they were conquered in battle, 
they would often make them slaves. If they were born into slavery, but also if you became a debtor, they would sell you as a slave. And this is where Gomer finds herself now. She's broke, nobody wants her. Her lovers have forsaken her um, and she, she's too prideful to try to go back to Hosea. And so she ends up in prison and then now she's on the slave market. It'd be like if you go down to Saturday market in Portland, but there's a little platform in the center where, where you got all these people that are being sold off as slaves. That's the way they did it. It's really not that uh, different than the horrible history in our country of slavery, the way they would, they would take a, a slave and sell a person. It's, it's just like treating people uh, horribly like livestock. And that's the way Gomer now is being treated. Probably, if you read the history, she is probably in chains, stripped naked as an older woman, probably old, decrepit and diseased. There she is. And, and she's standing on the slave market and saying, okay, who wants to buy this lady? I'm sure she can wash the dishes as they take a stick and poke and prod her, maybe show people her teeth or, you know, like just treating her like cattle. It's about as low as anybody could ever get. And here, you know, Gomer finds herself with no help at all. And the Lord says, Hosea, I've got another task for you. I want you to go down to the market, the slave market. And that's where we pick up here in Hosea chapter three, verse one. It says there in Hosea chapter three, verse one. Then said the Lord unto me, go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. Now, you know me, I love the King James Bible because it's, um, it's a beautiful translation. I think it's poetic. It's, it's very accurate in so many ways. But once in a while, I have to admit, there's verses like, ouch, that was, that's a tougher way to translate that verse. Um, in fact, you read that, what was that all about? Well, let me show you the NIV of the same verse um, because it does bring a little clarity what's being said. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she's loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her and the Lord loves the, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Huh? Raisin cakes? When did Fig Newtons come into this whole thing? Well, I, actually, um, raisin cakes, you, you know, in the King James, it says a flagon of wine. That sounds much more, you know, biblical, a flagon of wine. What's this whole raisin cake? Well, do you guys remember, you Wednesday nighters? What was Gomer's dad's name? His name was, you know, this kind of funny name, Diblaim. And all the names in the book of Hosea mean stuff that's important. And I, I used to th I think all these names mean something. God really points out what their names mean. But you got this funny name, Diblaim. And I, I looked that up and it says two cakes. That's what Diblaim means. Gomer's dad was Mr. Two Cakes. And you're like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it wasn't until later I did some studying and realized why we're talking about two cakes, Gomer's dad, and what had to do with these sacred raisin cakes. As it turns out, when you'd go to worship Baal in Bible times, one of the most sacred things you could do in that paganism was to bring two raisin cakes and offer them to Baal and the prophets of Baal. That was part of Baal worship. So Gomer was born to a dad that was Mr. Baal worship. That's the idea, he was a pagan. That's Mr. Two Cakes. And then here it says that you know Israel, um, show love to Israel as the Lord loves, loves Israel, um, though they turn to other gods and they love the sacred raisin cakes. We're talking about their Baal worshipers is the idea. So all that said, here's the Lord saying, Hosea, man, I want you to go and love your wife, even though she's messed up, tweaked out, in debt, on the slave market. And how are you gonna love her? You're gonna buy her. You're gonna buy her. Look at verse two. It says in verse two, so I bought her, to me for 15 pieces of silver and for a homer of barley and a half homer of barley. A homer for Gomer. <laughs> now you laugh at that thinking, Brad, come on, stop being silly. No, this is, the book of Hosea is, I, I mentioned this on uh, Wednesday night. It's funny how by the Holy Spirit, Hosea uses plays on words the whole time. Uh, this whole book has plays on words in kind of a funny way. Um, Brad, you're just making Homer for Gomer. No, Homer and Gomer are both Hebrew words in the original text. 
Gomer is a Hebrew word, Homer is a Hebrew word. And what's interesting is he uses this kind of word stuff all the time. Uh, and it's kind of funny to me, Homer for Gomer, what is this about? Well, as it turns out, do you know how much a typical slave in those days would go for? It's about 30 pieces of silver, 30. Well, then why did he pay 15? Well, he paid half of the price with 15 pieces of silver, but guess how much a Homer and a half was worth? Anybody wanna guess? 15 pieces of silver. If you wanted to buy a homer and a half of barley, you'd have to pay 15 pieces of silver. And what's amazing here is it equals 30. And for you Bible students, the pictures and the illustrations just keep going on and on, even as Jesus was betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Um, you say, what about Joseph? He was betrayed for 20 pieces of silver. Inflation, uh, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know. No, I, there's actually reasons for that I could talk about, but we don't have time. But be that as it may, I think this is all part of the expositional constancy of the Bible, that there's these common threads, but these 30 you know, shekels would really, it would be 15 plus the, the homer and a half. That's really what he pays for, for Gomer, to be freed as a slave. Um, man. Now, this is such a, a big part of the story uh, and people don't really realize, um, you know, remember God says, I'm gonna scatter you, Jezreel. You, you know, um, lo ruama, uh, no mercy for you. Um, lo uh, ama, which means, you know, you're not my people. But now the Lord's saying in chapter three, but I'm gonna take you back and I'm gonna love you. Um, did you know Paul the Apostle reaches back to the book of Hosea? In the book of Romans, he quotes Hosea. And you might miss it, and I'll tell you why. Because the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, 270 BC, the way they turned the name from Hosea, and then when it was translated to Greek, they would pronounce it O.C., Hosea, O.C. And that's why you might miss it. If you read Romans chapter nine, um, it says this, as he saith in O.C., which is Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. When Paul writes the commentary, chapters nine, 10, and 11, on God's plan and purpose for the Jewish people, it's part of this thing where we have to understand God is not done with the Jews. He loves the Jews, he has a plan and a purpose for the Jews. Don't ever forget that. Brett, you've told us that a thousand times. I'm gonna say it more and more because there's too many churches that think God's done with the Jews and that the church has replaced Israel. And it's really a horrible teaching that's out there right now. Just read Romans 9, 10, 11. You cannot believe that if you read Romans 9, 10, 11. And he reaches to the story of Gomer and Hosea saying, hey, don't forget, even as Hosea took back his you know, uh, prostitute wife, so too the Lord's gonna take back, restore and love his, his wife, Israel, even though they were you know, pagans and were flying in the face of the true and living God. But God says, but I'm still gonna call them my children. Agape, love. You see, this is where we start seeing the agape love in the story. Let me break this down to, to three things. First of all, number one, a redeeming love. A redeeming love. We see that in verse two. Uh, basically verse one and two of this chapter where he's redeeming. The word redemption is a doctrinal word that we use. It's a financial term. It means payment to buy back something, to redeem. Um, when I was a little kid, my mom used to save those green chip stamps or whatever they were called. And, um, and it was really fun because every time we went shopping, she'd get all these little stamps. And uh, me and my sisters, she would just give them to us and we'd collect them. And then we'd have a stamp day where my mom would get a wet sponge and stick it out there and we'd put our little stamps on the wet sponge and stick them in a booklet. And you'd, and these, these what were they called, green, green? Yeah, yeah. And we'd fill them up and then you'd bring your little books uh, into, guess what they called it? Anybody remember what they called it? Redemption Center. This is the first time I, I really, I, I got to be a part of something that was Redemption Center. And what it was, you could bring those little books in and you could redeem the chip stamps for something. And they were all dumb things, a fan. You'd get a little fan, like there's a fan. I could have a fan in my room. And I'd give my book and I'd get the fan and take it home. Uh, there was never anything really cool, but I don't know, there's something about getting free stuff. You get free stuff. It was a redemption center. You'd redeem your stamps for something that you wanted in the little store there. It was kind of like a, a little prize center for redemption stamps, redemption center. Well, do you understand that that's a financial term, redeeming and the Lord says, I wanna redeem you. I love you so much. You sold out to sin. You owe a debt that you cannot pay. The debt that you owe 
put you not in slavery, but in death and hell for all eternity. But I paid your price. I've redeemed you. And how did he do that? Well, let me give you a few really cool redemption scriptures. Ephesians chapter one, verse seven. It says, Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Does God run out of grace? No, he's rich in grace. And he wants to redeem you with his blood that he spilled on the cross of Calvary. When Jesus came, God became a man, lived among us, died on the cross for our sins. And, and Christ, who he, he was redeeming us through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. That's what redemption is. He, he paid the price for you, just like Hosea paid Gomer's price so that she could be free. Not only Ephesians, but also the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter three, uh, pardon me, um, chapter nine. And I love this because this is so good. It says that for this cause, he is the mediator uh, of the New Testament, new covenant, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first Testament, the Old Testament, the law of God that we all broke. We're under that condemnation of the old law, but the Lord redeems us the redemption of the transgressions that are under the first testament, that they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Man, your price was paid from your old sins when you broke the laws of God and the price is brutal, but the Lord paid the price. How did he pay the price? First Peter nails that down so perfectly. First Peter chapter one, verse 18 and 19 says, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your vain you know, conversation or lifestyle, but you received by the tradition of your fathers, but the, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You and I were saved by the redeeming work of God through the precious blood of Jesus who died on the cross. And anyone who will accept that redemption can be saved from death and hell, from the slavery of sin and death. So you got number one, a redeeming love we see here. And that's verses one and two, the redeeming love. In verse three now of our chapter, we see the second thing, a reclaiming kind of love. Check it, check it out, verse three. So after he pays the 15 silver pieces and the barley and a half, uh, Homer, verse three, and I said unto her, thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot and thou shalt not be for another man. So I will also be for thee. This is where repentance comes in. You see, Gomer has a choice to make right now. She can say, nope, I don't wanna be saved by you, Hosea. Uh, I wanna just be sold as a slave and die as a slave. She could have done that, that'd be stupid, but she didn't do that. But Hosea, some, you might be tempted to say, well, why does Hosea have all these thou shalt nots and these rules? Some of you kind of think God's got all these brutal rules for you. And you're like, who does God think he is saying you can? Or thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Well, that's what Hosea is saying here. Thou shalt not sleep with other men. Thou shalt not have anybody but me as your husband and I will be your husband for you. That's what he says. He says, thou shalt abide with me many days. That is for the rest of your days and thou shalt not play the harlot, and thou shalt not be for another man. And, and see, if you think about the situation, do you think Gomer's like, what a legalistic weirdo? Do you think that's what she said? What a legalist? No, he was rescuing her from certain doom. I'm sure at this point of her life, she's saying, man, I can't believe you're buying me back. I'll do whatever you want me to do. That's where you have to be as a Christian. If you wanna be a Christian and follow Jesus, you have to say, I recognize my old sinful ways. And that's what repentance is all about. You have to say, I, I want you to reclaim me, Lord, as your own. But in order to do that, I understand, I, I can't be out just sinning it up and partying down and you know, just acting like you know, it's no big deal. There, there needs to be sort of this, this understanding that man, he saved me. And, and that's what James talks about. You're not saved by your works, your good works, but, but faith that works does bring about salvation. Uh, you know, while Paul says you're, you're saved by grace through faith, not of your works, not of yourselves, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a gift from God. That's true. James says, but faith without works is dead. And that's where, this where we kind of see this actually pictured in the Old Testament. He's, he's saving her by paying her price. 
She didn't earn it. She didn't deserve it. She's being saved. But after she's saved, the Lord says to her or to Israel or to us, yeah, but you can't be a prostitute anymore. You can't go around sleeping around and you can't, I will be your husband. Um, do you think um, Gomer was perfect from that day forward? The Bible doesn't tell us. That's interesting. It's kind of left up to us to say, what are you gonna do when Christ saves you? Are you gonna be faithful to the Lord and walk with him? But I love that the Lord says, I reclaim you as my bride. And while Israel was the wife of God, the adulterous wife, you and I are called the bride of Christ. So as we're the bride of Christ, we're a work in progress for that day when we're married to Christ and that's gonna come, but we're saved by the grace of God through faith. That's such a beautiful thing. So we have this reclaiming love, verse three, very key. But that brings us to the last sort of observation of this agape love. It's a redeeming love, a reclaiming love, but thirdly, it's a restoring love. He wants to restore and bless. And he wants to, you know, like the, the, the prophet Joel we talked about last week, you know, he wants to restore the years the locusts have eaten. All the mess ups and all the stuff you've done, the grotesque things. The Lord says, I wanna restore you back to good standing. Now, for Israel, that's gonna take a long process. Because the last two verses, verses four and five, we see here where the Lord has some bad news and then some good news. The bad news is bad, but the good news is way better. What do you mean? Well, let's read verses four and five, and then we'll be done with chapter three. He starts out with the bad news in verse four. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, without an ephod, and without a teraphim. Now pause there for a second. This is a time where Israel will not have a king, no temple to put sacrificial worship, no ephod. The ephod was the garment the priest would wear that had the, the stones where they could, you know, the urim and the thummim, if you remember that is. And they, they, they learned what to do and where to go and how to do it. Um, the Lord says, you're not gonna have that for a long, long time. Anybody wanna know what this, this period or time is called? Anybody wanna take a stab? I mentioned it earlier, it's called the diaspora when the Jews were driven out of Jerusalem and they no longer had a temple, an ephod and a priest and sacrifice. And to this day, the Jews in Jerusalem would love to have a temple. They'd love to bring back the sacrificial system, but they can't, why? Islam has the Temple Mount. If the Jews go up to the Temple Mount, war breaks out. Like it's a bad deal. You got the Dome of the Rock Shrine and the, um, and, you know, the Al-Aqsa Mosque there in the, on the Temple Mount and you've got uh, trouble in Israel and there's no way, but, but there's coming a day, the Lord says, I'm gonna scatter you, that's Jezreel. And you're not gonna be my people and you're not gonna have mercy, that's verse four. But then there's coming a day when I'm gonna redeem you, I'm gonna restore you. I'm gonna reclaim you as my bride. This is the Lord now speaking directly to Israel. No longer are we talking about Hosea and Gomer. Verses four and five goes right to Israel. So Israel, just like Hosea and Gomer, that's the picture. Now I'm gonna scatter you for a long, long time, for several thousand years. You and I are a privileged bunch who get to see prophecy unfold right in front of our eyes. As the last you know, 100 years, we've watched Jews migrate back to Israel and become a nation again. That's God regathering his people fulfilling Bible prophecy. But they're still not sacrificing. There's still no linen ephod. There's still no worship going on. What's gonna happen? When is that gonna happen? When is, all, when is the Lord gonna restore and redeem and do all that? That's verse five. Afterward, verse five, shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. When you see that in the King James Bible, um, in the latter days, it's equivalent of saying in the end times, at the end of the world, that's when it's gonna happen. This is the Lord saying, I'm gonna scatter you for a long, long time, but there's coming a day in the latter days, in the end times, I'm gonna regather and I'm gonna restore and I'm gonna redeem you, Israel. And we've been talking about that prophetically in the book of Daniel for the last couple months of God's plan for the Jews to save and restore Israel after the abomination of desolation and the Jews will be, their eyes will be opened and they'll run to the Petra and be saved. And remember that whole thing. This is Hosea the prophet talking about that time when Israel will be redeemed and restored and reclaimed as God's people. That's gonna happen. That's what this beautiful story is about. 
It's not only about Israel and God's love, agape love, unconditional, beautiful love that God has for this kind of wretched, miserable people. Guess what? The Lord has that same kind of love for you and me, wretched, miserable people that we are. Sinners who've messed up and that same restoring, redeeming, reclaiming kind of love. You might say, Brett, you don't understand. I'm the worst person in this world and nobody loves me and God doesn't love me. I'm sure he's mad at me. Nope. Not if you read your Bible. The Lord does acknowledge that you're a sinner and you messed up and all that. But the Lord says, but I still love you. I love you as a father loves his children. I love you as a husband loves his wife. Like it's an amazing thing that the Lord says, but I, I wanna reclaim you and redeem you. And, and, and the question is, have you been reclaimed? Or are you the, the stiff-necked Gomer just running, running away from God? I don't want God's love. I can do this myself. Well, that's, that's a very Gomer mindset. You know, I gotta say, I'm trying to, I gotta be careful because I don't wanna sound like I'm insulting anybody who's an unbeliever here. But can I just say, I'm always amazed at the reasons people say, the reason I'm not a Christian is because, and, and the lack of logic is so painful. Uh, the reason I'm not a Christian is I really don't like Christians. I find that there's a lot of hypocrites in the church. Um, can I just say that's stupid? It's really stupid, I'll tell you why. Um, of course there's hypocrites in the church. Of course there's weirdos and sinners. I'm one of them. You shouldn't be shocked by that but has nothing to do with God's love for you. Um, God loves a bunch of other weirdos and what's good news for you, if they could love us, if God can love us, it's amazing. He might even be able to love you. Like this is a weird thing. It's, it's like if you go down to the oncology center, the Providence one on 84 up there, like it's a beautiful building, but it's a scary place. I'll tell you why, because it's where people go with cancer. And, 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 it's, and you may go in there and, and what if you had cancer? What if, what if you went to your doc and your doctor said, man, you got stage four cancer. You gotta get up to the oncology center and get some help. They need to do some work on you to save your life. And you say, you know what? I, I, I find that when I go to the oncology center up there, uh, I find that the people in the hospital, I don't really like them that much. I've noticed there's people that are a little less classy than I am. They, you know, there's, there's some people that live in trailer parks and they drive regular, you know, like a, you know, Ford Taurus. Um, uh, and I, I just don't really like being around. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Just because you don't like the people or their lifestyle or who they are in the hospital, it has nothing to do with what you need. You need to go to the hospital because you need care yourself. And it has nothing to do with the people that are in the oncology center. It has to do that you need to be helped. You see, that's the dumbness of people going in, I, I would be a Christian, except I just don't like Christians. That's, that's just so short-sighted. You, you're the one who's headed for hell and destruction according to the Bible, your sin. And you can look at other people and stay away from God for dumb reasons, or you can realize you've got this loving God who's saying, I love you so much, I will pay the price for you. And he's lovingly trying to draw you in and say, come with me. And, and, and you know what? You need to understand this. God is a perfect gentleman. He doesn't force his love on you. That's called rape. God says, come unto me, all you who are weary of it. Take, learn of me. My burden is easy. My Lord, come to me. He lovingly invites you to come and be saved and not go to hell. But there's a bunch of people who say, well, I don't like Christians and I don't like churches and the money that churches and blah, blah, blah. People get all upset about stuff that has nothing to do with God and you. God loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So your question is today is have you been saved? Have you accepted Christ? And, and it's time to put aside all the, the, the goofy reasons. Well, I find that the Bible has this and that and controversy and, and all that. Well, I've been studying the Bible for a long time and all the so-called contradictions and stuff, it's just, it's just a bunch of hogwash. And maybe you listen to that college professor who told you about this or that, and you're, you're saying, I'm not gonna be a Christian because of that. Are you really willing to reject the love of God, this agape, unconditional love that God has for you? The Lord says, oh, I would that none should perish. God loves the world so much, he wants no one to perish, but that everyone would come to repentance and that everyone would have eternal life. That's the heart of God. But God will not force you. If God is love, he won't send people to hell. He is love and he's wooing you. He's trying to draw you away from hell. But as a human, you and I, we have this magnetism toward hell. 
We just wanna go there because we like our sin way too much. But then the older you get and the more your sin has eaten you up, you realize, oops, I've chosen poorly. I've gone the wrong way. But I'll tell you, no matter how bad you've been, the Lord's still there just wooing you saying, man, I'd love you to come to me and I'll forgive you for your sin and you'll be forgiven. Doesn't mean you're gonna be perfect. It just means you're gonna be forgiven. Just like old Gomer there on the slave market, there's a point in your life where you just have to give up and say, okay, Lord, I'm yours. Repent of your sins and be saved by the grace of God. Don't be stubborn. If you're watching online and you've been stubborn, don't be stubborn. If you're here in the room and someone dragged you to church today, I, I just wanna tell you, there, there's so many of us that have accepted Christ. It's the best decision we ever made to finally give in and say, yep, I'm a horrible sinner. Just acknowledge it and believe it and then let the Lord put his love and his forgiveness and his mercy on you. It's the best thing that'll ever happen to you. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Oh Lord, I, I'm so thankful for your love, your agape love. Lord, the love that the world has no idea how beautiful and perfect it is. For the Christians here, Lord, we have two prayers. One, help us to love people like you love us. Help us to be filled with agape like you have for us, unconditional love for people. Forgive us where we've been stubborn and stingy and forgetting 1 Corinthians 13 of how we're, we're just a bunch of gongs when we have our knowledge and spew our opinions and, and forget that agape is really the main thing. But Lord, also as Christians, help us to just rejoice of what you've done for us, that you took a bride for yourself that's not so attractive from our perspective, but you loved us all the same. Unconditional, beautiful, sacrificial love. May we walk away from this service as Christians, just rejoicing for so great a love, Lord. Bless your people today as we walk out. Help us to just be full of joy, knowing you love us that much. But for the person who's yet to accept your love, I pray that you just, as you, you do, Lord, you spiritually sort of tap people on the shoulder and they know that you're wooing them and trying to, trying to draw them to your love. But Lord, whatever it is that's holding them back, I pray that you just lift up those barriers, lift up those goofy reasons that keep people from your everlasting love. And may they just be open to the idea of, of just repenting of their sin and being forgiven of their sin, being saved. If you would, Christians, just be in prayer. I'm gonna ask, uh, I'm gonna invite anyone who wants to accept Christ right now. I'm not gonna embarrass you. I'm gonna have everybody else keep their heads bowed right now. But if you're an unbelieving person and you've been hesitant to become a Christian for some reason, today is a great day to accept Christ and his love. Dump all your, your baggage, man, the sin that you've accumulated. Maybe it looked really cool when you're younger, but now you're like, oh man, I, I'm, I messed up. My, my life is messed up. The Lord wants to take you back and he, he, he redeems you with the price of his precious blood and he forgives you of your sins. And, he'll, and it's not even about being comfortable or happy in this life. It's about the life after you die, eternal life in heaven that comes to you if you're saved. So what do you gotta do? The Bible makes it clear, you repent. Just say, I'm a sinner and acknowledge your sin before God and know and acknowledge that it's wrong. But then say, but I also believe that Jesus, this is what it says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ and God raised him up from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved, saved from hell, eternal hell and death. You're off the slave market and you're on the track of being the bride of Christ. What a privilege, don't miss this. And if that's you, I'd like to pray that prayer of confession, the confession with the mouth, belief in the heart, I'd like to pray that in with you. If people say, Brett, it's too easy. You can't do it that way. That's too easy. Nope. People, you'll hear people say, that's just cheap grace. Can I tell you how stupid of a term that is? What an oxymoron, jumbo shrimp. Um, cheap grace is an oxymoron. How so? Grace was free, but it was not cheap. Grace came at a huge price where God sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for my sins and yours. So it's time to receive that. If that's you, I'm, again, with everybody else's heads bowed, but if that's you, would you acknowledge that between you, me, and God right now, just the three of us? And by looking up and raising your hand, you're saying, Brad, I wanna accept Christ today. I wanna accept Jesus and I'm gonna confess him. Awesome, cool. I see you right there, that's good. 
I'm just gonna look around, awesome, back there, cool. You over here, good. Let me just look around a little more, I don't wanna miss you, awesome, see you back there, good. I'm gonna pray this prayer of confession and way in the back there, I see you, that's great. I'm gonna pray this prayer and I'm gonna ask the whole church to pray out loud. We love getting behind you guys that are saying yes to Christ and, and man, just the Lord hears you. He's the one who does all the work. You're just now, it's, it's like the proposal with Hosea to Gomer, will you marry me? This is the Lord saying, I want you to be my bride. And this is you saying, yes. I want you to be my bridegroom, Christ our bridegroom. That's the image of the, of the New Testament. So let's do that, let's confess right now. Pray this out loud with me. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins, and that he rose up from the grave, and that all my sins are forgiven. Help me to walk with you, and thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Lord, how thankful I am for these who've just confessed you in faith, believing that you are the one who saves. Now, Lord, would you do what you do? I pray you just wrap your loving arms around these people that they'd know that they're forgiven and that you don't hold their sins to them and, and that you love them with that agape love. May they just sense that love, Lord, and, and just, just surround them with people who love them as Christian brothers and sisters who can help just bless them and, and disciple them in their faith. Uh, Lord, we pray you're covering upon them and we thank you for what you've done today. In Jesus' name, amen.